Okay, we're live and welcome back to another interesting and exciting and thrilling and hopefully entertaining podcast here on the John Riley Project. You know, this is a podcast all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Today, we're going to talk about a number of things. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Golden State Warriors. You know, they're in the NBA Finals against the Boston Celtics. I grew up a Warriors fan. I want to share some stories that I remember from my childhood being a Warriors fan. Um, but then I want to get into some of the current news of the day. You know, there's there's been a lot of discussion um, about this new plan, about supposedly the Republican Party wants to eliminate Social Security and Medicare. And so I want to kind of break that down, talk a little bit about tips that I think that we can offer to sort of help you pursue your happiness um, in terms of financial planning and overcoming edu- uh, overcoming inflation. So there's a lot we can discuss today, but that's kind of the angle here. It's going to be warriors. We'll talk about this little Social Security, a little financial planning, um, overcoming inflation. And, of course, we're happy to take your questions, comments, and suggestions on the live stream. You are a participant in this podcast. Feel free to type your questions and comments in on Facebook and on YouTube, and I'll see them here on my screen I'll, I'll read the, the answers or questions that you post. I'll read them on the air, and we'll have some fun today. So, okay, so how you doing, all? Um, hope everyone's had a great, uh, you know, week here. You know, we're like in, what, mid-June now, so we're approaching Father's Day. There's graduation that's, you know, been happening over the last few weeks and college graduation that's been happening since May. So that's a great time, right? You know, it's a really special time, um, and I'm a big fan of, this time of the year when it just seems like it stays light so late. Um, I remember just like last night, I think I was remarking that it was still light outside at 815. And, you know, it kind of peaks, what, around June 20th or 21st for the summer solstice. But I remember when I grew up in the Bay Area, um, it would stay light until about 915 um, on, on around the summer solstice because we were so much further north and further west than San Diego. So kind of maximize it. I remember that was a glorious time as a kid because, you know, we'd be outside playing after dinner and it was like you had all this bonus time uh, that seemed to go, uh, you know, like again, until like 9.15 until I had to come in. So those are great times. So anyways, before I kind of get into the agenda, uh, you know, the, that I've outlined, I want to do, I want to share one really interesting story that happened. Um, I mean, the craziest things happen in this podcast, the people I meet, the situations that occur. So, you know, about, um, you know, roughly a month or so ago, we did a podcast with um, with with Pete Murray, who is a candidate for judge. Pete, by the way, was successful in the June 7th primary. He came in first place, didn't get 50 percent. So he and the second place person are going to have to go into the general election in November. So Pete Murray, great guy. Well, anyways, someone went to my website, filled out my contact form, and this woman said, oh, my God, this is like fate. I don't know how it happened, but I was online and I saw this suggestive video and it was of Pete Murray. And by the way, I've been trying to get a hold of Pete Murray. It turned out that like... I don't know, you know, a number of years ago, probably 20 or so years ago, um, Pete was, you know, an assistant district attorney for the county of San Diego. 
And he prosecuted this woman for murdering the sister of the lady that contacted me in the, in the contact form. So he said, Pete convicted of the murder of my sister. And now due to some nuance in California law, you know, she, she was given, by the way, the, the maximum sentence. I think it was 50 years. But now to the nuances of California law, she's coming up for parole after only 24 years. And she was reaching out, trying to get a hold of Pete to maybe write a letter on her behalf. Um, and so I forward that off to Pete. And Pete's like, yeah, well, I remember that story. And I remember that case. And that's kind of special. So here I am, just a podcaster, and I'm kind of connecting people, connecting old friends old, I guess you could say, relationships, in this case, a professional relationship when Pete was an assistant, assistant district attorney. So I don't know, it's just cool. To me, I like that. Um, you know, just sort of the quirky things that happen as a result of having this podcast. The people I meet, the situations I find myself in. And, and even for me as a podcaster, this is, you know, a relatively small podcast. But wow, I mean, some of the things that happen on this are just really fun. Okay, so I just want to talk briefly. It's topical right now. I want to talk about the Golden State Warriors. And, you know, they're in the finals right now, the NBA finals against the Boston Celtics. They just won game five of the series to go up 3-2. That game was on Monday. And then Thursday, I think, which is tomorrow, they'll be playing game six in Boston. So, you know, this is a big deal in the world of sports. But, you know, I grew up a Golden State Warriors fan. You know, it's funny how some people, you know, you see them wearing the gear for their team and you wonder, well, why are you a fan of that team? Right. And most people have a story. You know, they're they're either from that city or maybe it's a team that your parents always followed. And so you follow them. Um, you know, in some cases, people are just bandwagoners. They just tend to want to root for the popular team. I mean, that was certainly true back in the day when the Dallas Cowboys were winning all those Super Bowls in the 90s. I see all these people wearing Cowboys, you know, gear. And I'd say, man, are you from Dallas? Are you from Texas? I'm like, no. I go, well, why do you root for the Cowboys? He goes, oh, I don't know. I just like them. <laughs> so there's a lot of people like that. But for me, I'm, I've always been a Warriors fan. And I, even when my, my son, when he was young and he was just starting to follow basketball, probably, you know, in the late 2000s. And he was starting to take a liking to the Clippers because back then they had Blake Griffin. And he's like, Dad, who's your favorite team? And I said, oh, yeah, the Golden State Warriors. And he's like, who are they? <laughs> I've never heard of them. And, you know, because for so long, the Warriors have been terrible. You know, uh, they won a championship in 1975 when I was a young child. And then they went for like 40 years of just misery being the doldrums of the league. You know, there might've been a few glimpses of making the playoffs um, as a, uh, as a low seed, but generally speaking, you know, they've been just in the, in the depths of despair for so long. And it just seems that lately, like in the last eight years, they've been really good. I mean, they've been in the, in the NBA finals now, six of the last eight years. And I'm sure some people are overdosing on Golden State Warriors, but I'm telling you, we went so long without a championship um, that it's so great to see them successful now. Now, here's a kind of a crazy story is that when I was a kid, I was an altar boy. You know, I went to a Catholic elementary school and, you know, was associated with a Catholic church there. And, and you know, we, we 
were the altar boys for the masses and we got to know the priests and, and there was no funny business. Okay. It was all, you know, good. It was, you know, good relationships, good people. We were all treated very well. Um, but that was kind of a thing, you know, if you're a, a kid like fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, and you're at a Catholic school, well, being an altar boy is kind of a special thing. And so, um, so my, myself and a lot of my friends, we were all altar boys. And every year, the priests would take us to a Golden State Warriors game. And that was a huge deal. I mean, first of all, it was interesting to know that Catholic priests were sports fans. Because <laughs> normally you think of them as, you know, religious figures. You think of priests as community leaders that, you know, they're supposedly celibate. You know, they're kind of, you would think, sort of disconnected from culture to a degree, but they're not. They're just regular people, just like you or me. I mean, they were kids and they grew up as sports fans and a lot of them are. And so we used to always go to the game and, you know, there'd be like two or three priests that would go and then there would be uh, parents that would chaperone as well because we'd have to, you know, do carpools and, you know, a bunch of parents would kind of pick up three or four boys and, and we'd, you know, head over to the Oakland Coliseum and go to these games and boy, was that a thrill? I mean, I mean, it's one thing to go, you know, we used to go to baseball games at Candlestick and that was great. But, and I even went to some games at the Oakland Coliseum, but going to an NBA game was very different. I mean, it wasn't like you were outdoors and it had this sort of relaxing, chill atmosphere that baseball often has. I mean, when you're in an arena, it's loud and it's got a lot of energy. And back then in the 1970s, the Warriors were really good. Um, they won the NBA championship, I think, I think it was in 1975 when they beat the um, the Bullets, the you know, the Washington Bullets, who later changed their name to the the Wizards. You know, to be politically correct. God, I remember that we were. Uh, I was living at home, and back then, you know, they, they didn't. I mean, it was hard enough to get baseball games on television back then. You know, there was a Saturday game of the week. Um, the Giants were sometimes on television maybe a couple of times a month, but only on the independent station. Um, and then, of course, the NFL was big and Monday Night Football, but the NBA was a really kind of not a big sport in the 1970s. In fact, when they showed the NBA Finals on television, they always put it on tape delay. I mean, the, the game might have occurred at 6 or 7 in the evening, but they would actually run the game at 11 o'clock at night or at midnight you know, because they were afraid they were going to have lower ratings than they otherwise would during their primetime hours. And of course, that's not the case now. Uh, but I remember listening to that game. I was lying down in my dining room floor and my parents had this console uh, and it was like this big piece of furniture and it had a radio and it had a turntable and I think it had an eight track player and you would have to like lift a lid and then you could look inside and, and uh, you know, change the radio station or, you know, set up new records on the turntable. Um, and I remember, like, listening to that. It was either on, like, KSFO 560, I think, might have been the Warrior Station or KMBR 680. I can't remember. But I remember laying there listening to the game, game four, because they swept it that year. They, the Bullets were heavily favored. And the Warriors, these scrappy underdogs, won the whole thing in four games straight, 4-0. Yeah, listen to those games there. That was that was something. I think I was like 10 years old. And so that's, you know, all part of that process when I was 
eight, nine, ten years old is when I really started to fall in love with sports and following the Warriors and the Giants. And, you know, back then the 49ers were awful. Um, and I used to follow the Raiders as well. So it was a lot of fun. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, we would go to the game with all the altar boys. We'd roll into the Oakland Coliseum. And can, you can imagine, like, a bunch of 10- and 11-year-olds and, and the chaperones and priests are there. I mean, we're like a herd of cats. It's like trying to keep track of us. And then myself and one of my buddies, I remember we snuck down through the state, through the arena, and we got down on the ground floor right where the players kind of come on and off the field of the court, you know, right where the court has that kind of corner and there's a hallway into the – uh, you know, into the locker rooms. Somehow we got down there um, and we were on ground level and we were like these little 10 year olds. And I couldn't believe how huge these athletes were. And it was unbelievable. Um, so anyways, you know, you follow the Warriors in the 70s and in the late 70s, they were terrible. They traded away Robert Parrish. They traded away a draft pick that later became Either Larry Bird or Kevin McHale was one or the other, which ended up loading the Celtics up. And uh, and then the Warriors were just awful in the 80s. You know, by this time in the 80s, everything was Lakers Celtics, you know. And I hear I'm going to college in San Diego and so many L.A. people that were in the area. And they're all Lakers this, Celtics that. And, you know, this guy from San Francisco, there is just no way, no way I could root for the Lakers. I mean – I was when I was a little kid. I mean, I remember just being. It was almost like religion. You don't root for the Dodgers. You don't root for the Rams. You don't root for the Lakers. So, gosh, it was in the '80s. So, what did I do? I kind of gravitated to the Celtics. You know, my Irish heritage, and they were kind of the other team. So, I had a team to kind of sort of root for. And back then, you know, of course, it was this amazing team. Um, even t- to this day, I'll go on YouTube and watch. Um, Highlight reels of Larry Bird. Oh, my God, what an amazing player he was back in the day. Um, but back then, the Warriors were crap. They were terrible. And then they had a, like about in the late 80s, they had a little bit of a run for a couple of years span. Um, they had that run TMC, uh, Tim Hardaway, Mitch Richmond, and Chris Mullen. And they were good, but they might have only gotten in the playoffs maybe one round. Maybe they got to the second round. And then in the 90s, they were awful. In the 90s, of course, of the big Chicago Bulls era, uh, their dynasty. And then in the 2000s, they were terrible. And they eventually drafted um, you know, Steph Curry. And, and then finally in 2015, they won it all, like 40 years after they won it in 75, back when I was 10 years old. And so – you know, so right now, you know, they, they've been in the final six of the last eight years uh, and they've won three championships. And right now they're on the cusp, if all goes well, to win their fourth ring in the last eight years. Now, that's not like Michael Jordan level. Remember, he won six rings in eight years. And, you know, or you can, one other way to say it is the, the Bulls made the finals six out of eight years, just like the Warriors have. But the Warriors just didn't win it every year. Uh, I remember one year they they ended up losing because Draymond Green, who's kind of their tough guy on the Warriors, ended up punching LeBron James in the balls. And he got te- teed up, technical, and then the Warriors just weren't able to compete. Um, and they ended up losing that one. And then the other series is when the Warriors played, I think it was the Toronto Raptors, wasn't that? And that was the one when Kawhi Leonard won his NBA championship. It was the second time he was in the NBA Finals MVP. And, of course, I'm a huge Kawhi Leonard fan. 
But I th- if I recall, that was the series that Clay Thompson got injured, that Kevin Durant got injured. Um, and I think Clay blew out his ACL, I think, and then Durant blew out his Achilles. And you lose two of your top five players. I mean, two of your top three players. I mean, there was just no coming back. So, I mean, you know, it's kind of woulda, coulda, shoulda, but imagine if things had gone the Warriors' way, if Draymond kind of handled himself and didn't, you know, get teed up for punching LeBron, and if those injuries didn't happen in the finals, I mean, it's a good chance we could be on par with the with the Bulls in the 90s, winning six out of the eight, last eight championships. So this is pretty cool. So um, anyways, tomorrow is Thursday. That's game six. It's in Boston. And as much as I'd love the Warriors to win it immediately, I'm hoping it goes to a game seven because game sevens are always awesome in sports. And game seven, they'll come back to San Francisco and play, you know, because they have that new arena in the city and it's gorgeous. And hopefully they can win it at home in a game seven. I think that'd be that'd be a must-see TV. So if that happens, then they'll play Thursday. And then assuming it goes game seven, that'll be on Sunday. So um, I'm hopeful for that. So anyways, I'm just excited, you know, and again, you know, I'm a big baseball fan too, but I mean, this is the NBA finals. This is pretty big. And um, <laughs> I will say this is when I moved to San Diego in 82 to go to college, I remember I tried to make an effort to follow the Clippers, you know, because I like following the local team. And in fact, I worked for the Clippers for a while. When I was a freshman in high, in college, I used to go down to the sports arena and I sold popcorn and soda up and down the aisles at the sports arena. It was a great job. Uh, we ended up, uh, you, know, you get, I remember I was guaranteed, I think at least 15 bucks a night, um, which was more than minimum wage. And then if my sales exceeded a certain level, then I made commission that I could make more than 15 bucks a night. And on top of it, I was able to watch the game. Um, and I only had to work the first three quarters. So fourth quarter, you know, a lot of the workers went home. I stuck around and watched the NBA game. And, you know, back then the Clippers were just terrible. Uh, and the arena was largely empty, uh, except when the Lakers and Celtics came into town. And then it was jam-packed. Boy, it was a lot of fun. And then I also, they also had the San Diego Soccers there and truck pulls and all kinds of things. That was a great job. But I tried to follow the Clippers. I, you know, I tried to give it an honest effort to follow the local team. And then Gosh, a few years later, they ended up moving to L.A. But at any rate, go Warriors. I'm, I'm really excited for them. Okay, so uh, let's shift gears here a bit. Um, but before we get into financial planning and Social Security and overcoming inflation, you know, I just want to welcome you to, you know, if you, if you want to learn more about the podcast, go on my website, johnreillyproject.com. There you'll see blog articles and all of our episodes. You can sign up and get on our mailing list. You can uh, buy some uh, JRP gear. You know, I've, I'm selling some stuff up there on the website. So uh, if you want to learn more, um, you want to be a guest on the on the podcast, just go to my website, johnreillyproject.com. You can fill out a form, get more info, and I welcome you to visit there. Okay. Um, let's talk about... <laughs> You know, I always tell you this, this podcast is about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So we're going to talk now about financial planning, you know, to a degree. I'm not going to go crazy with it. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, Social Security and inflation, because a lot of this is really topical right now. And it's topical for my wife and I and our family. 
So, I mean, these are all skills, I think, that are important for you to live your life and pursue your happiness. So that's why I bring it up. Okay, so um, it was about a week ago, two weeks ago, uh, my wife and I had, you know, one of our periodic meetings with our financial planner, who, by the way, has been very, very helpful for us. And if you are saving for your retirement, I would strongly encourage you to have a financial planner. In fact, everyone should be saving for their retirement. Um, and really, everyone should be getting really good financial advice from a professional. And we're very pleased that we've, we found a person early on. In fact, Kim discovered her, you know, my wife Kim discovered her, um, you know, back when we were both in our 20s. And this financial planner has been fantastic um, and has taught us so much, has helped us make really good choices. And so, you know, we're both in our late 50s, and so we're kind of getting close to retirement. So we're starting to run a lot of the what-if analysis. You know, if we retire at this age, then how does this project out? If we retire at that age, how does it project out? And we just run all these different scenarios, all these this modeling. And it's really, really fascinating because we're looking at our spending patterns. We're assuming there's inflation. There's a cost of living increases. And then, you know, we've got our assets that are invested. We've got um, Social Security. You know, we've got a number of other things going. Of course, we have our property, our house. And you, you want to make sure that you – you have enough money to fund the rest of your life. You, I mean, you don't want to outlive your money. You don't want to run out of money when you're 72 uh, and live into your 80s. I mean, that would be tragic. So a lot of this is important that you plan properly. And so we were doing all the different scenarios. And in some cases, we do scenarios like, okay, what if one of the spouses passes early? Can the second person survive? for a long period of time. And, you know, depending on each of our particular um, uh, retirement plans with our employers and the other things we've set up, there's different scenarios. So it's really interesting to run those scenarios. But while I was going through that, I couldn't help but think, what are a lot of other people doing? I mean, granted, I'm looking at my own life and, you know, we're doing all right. But there's a lot of other people that are really struggling and if you look at what is the average savings, um, and, you know, for retirement for the for an average person, it's really only a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars. I mean, I pulled up some of the numbers here. Like, if you are in your teens and twenties, you of course aren't going to have much saved, but it's usually between four thousand and nine thousand dollars. That probably sounds about right. Hopefully, in your late twenties, you'd have a lot more than that especially if you're working for a corporation that has a good 401k plan. And then according to these numbers, and these come from the Federal Reserve, people in their 20s and 30s typically have between 21 and 48,000 saved. And in their 40s, they have between 101 and 148,000 saved. In their 50s, they have between 146 and 223,000. You know, that's in in uh, bank accounts, in 401ks, in any kind of a retirement plan. People in their 50s typically have between 146 to 223. And then people in their 60s, you know, between 200 and 221. You know, that sounds like a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money. I mean, so that's what I think about is, you know, back in the day, 
People work for these corporations. They were lifers that they would work for the same company for 40 years. They would get a, a pension, you know, that between their Social Security and their pension, and hopefully they had some additional savings, they'd probably be able to live a reasonable life when they retire. But now so few companies offer pensions. Um, if you work in the government, you're, you're going to get a pension. There are a few c- companies that offer pensions, but they're rare. So then what are these people going to do? I, want, I, I worry about that because I think people in their 40s and 50s are probably the, 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 the first couple of generations that are living without a pension. Um, and when it comes time for them to retire, there could be a really serious shitstorm coming for a lot of people because Social Security by itself is nowhere near enough. I mean, they're a person on Social Security. How much do you get? It's like, I think depending on your situation, between fifteen hundred and what twenty three hundred a month, something like that. Um, that's not a lot of money, particularly if you live in Southern California. Um, you that doesn't even cover your rent payment or your mortgage payment in many cases. So, what are these people going to do when all hell? is going to break loose because Social Security in and of itself, I mean, you can question the solvency of that program. But if you don't have savings or enough savings, I mean, if you only have 100 to 200 grand in the bank, that's nowhere near enough. And I just think, wow. I mean, according to this, this survey by the Federal Reserve, the average household only has $131,000 saved for retirement. 131. I mean, you could probably live for a couple of years, you know, and that's it on that kind of retirement. Um, you know, granted, over time, it's going to build and if you invest it properly. But it just makes me wonder, why is it so low? Why don't people have more saved? And I think um, I think in many cases, there's a false sense of security. I think there's a lot of people that think that, well, you know, I'm going to have Social Security and you know, government will always be there for me. They'll bail me out. I think some people think that or subconsciously think that. Um, I think there's a lot of other people that just aren't financially literate. They just really haven't been educated on personal finance. Um, And if they have been educated, they may not have the discipline to really save their money, invest their money, grow their money, and build a nest egg for retirement. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I, you know, we did the, 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 the whole podcast on the richest man in Babylon, that book about the parables in ancient Babylon about saving money, investing money, and how to, you know, as they say, fatten thy purse. It's a great book. I mean, I wrote a blog article about it. I also have a podcast about it. That book really changed my life in my 19, in, the, in my 20s. It made a big difference in how I started to really understand finance and how I began to take my own financial literacy and my own financial um, strategy a lot more seriously. Um, But still people I don't think are as literate as they should be. In fact, I think one could say that, you know, maybe there's not enough financial education. I think that's a, there's a deficit of that to use a financial term. You know, we, I mean, were you really taught much about, personal finance when you were in high school? I certainly wasn't. You know, back then we had checkbooks. No one taught me how to balance a checkbook. My parents kind of helped me do that. 
But so many basic things in life, I mean, there just really was very little education. You know, our teachers in high school were too busy, you know, teaching us the Pythagorean theorem and, and a lot of um, a lot of other skills that while they are certainly important um, and are important, to, you know, if you're going to go to college. They're not necessarily important on how you manage your life. And a lot of people in high school don't go to college. They come out of high school and, you know, then suddenly they're in the workforce and they may not have that kind of financial education, that financial literacy, and certainly not the financial discipline. And so I think in a lot of ways in today's society, there's not enough long-term thinking. And I think people are living in the moment, which in one level is great. Uh, we don't want to get too hung up on the future or too hung up on the past. We want to enjoy the moment. But at the same time, we've got to make wise choices. We've got to plan for our future. And sometimes I don't know if people really have that long-term horizon um, in terms of how they manage their life. And so um, it's concerning to me. And then the, the news that just came out yesterday, and I invite your comments and questions here on the live stream, feel free to type them in on Facebook and YouTube. Now, suddenly the storyline is that the Republican Party want to end Medicare and Social Security. I mean, here we're talking about planning for your retirement and we hear this. Now, apparently the Republicans want to end these programs. Now, if you <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to break this down in a moment, but I just want to tee it up with this. We hear this every election cycle. We hear this every election cycle that the evil Republicans are going to kill Social Security and kill Medicare. But you know what? They never do. Um, in fact, they expand both those programs. I mean, George W. Bush added Medicare Part D to provide prescription drug coverage for seniors in their health program. Um, even Ronald Reagan, um, who some Republicans look upon as one of the saviors of the party, he increased taxes to help Social Security grow. Um, and so when I hear this rhetoric every election cycle, um, and it's from left-wing uh, folks, that the Republicans are going to kill Social Security and kill Medicare, it's just fear-mongering over and over again because we hear it every election cycle. It's like Chicken Little. Um, this this nonsense. But there is a storyline here. And what the storyline is this, is that Rick Scott, who is a senator from Florida, he's now calling for a program that wouldn't necessarily target Social Security and Medicare, but more broadly, that all federal government programs would be eligible to be sunsetted after five years. So in other words, at, at every five years, every program would almost need to be reevaluated and reaffirmed to continue. Um, and in many ways, that makes a great deal of sense. I mean, what's the famous uh, Milton Friedman line? There's nothing's ever so permanent as a temporary government program, right? When government programs are set up, they almost never go away. And I think no matter where you line up on the political spectrum – there's a lot of government programs that really should go away, but they never do because, you know, there's always a constituency behind that. And as a result, these politicians don't ever want to cut them. But opening up the process where these things would need to be reevaluated every five years, 
I mean, that's just, you know, good management. I mean, if you're running a business, you want to re-examine all of your initiatives and make sure they're running properly. Frankly, you shouldn't be doing it every five years. You should be doing it every year, maybe even every month. Hey, Tony Russo on the live stream. How you doing, Johnny? Nice to see you, Tony. Um, but it's it's good, I think, to reevaluate your your initiatives, even as an individual. It's important to reassess and reevaluate the things that you're doing in your life, your physical and mental health, your career, your relationships. I mean, every aspect of your life should be reevaluated on a periodic basis. So we're hearing this from the Republicans and some of the other Republicans are jumping in and saying, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And of course, our friends on the left, the progressives, are convinced this is all a scheme for the Republicans to eliminate Social Security and Medicare. And first of all, that's never going to happen. It, first of all, they're not even going to implement this five-year sunset thing. I mean, it just won't happen. It never will. Um, because the Republicans just want to keep spending, just like the Democrats. And there's no way the Republicans would ever end Social Security. Uh, because they have all, like not all, but most of their voters are old people. Most of their voters are on Social Security and getting Medicare. There's no way the Republicans would cut those programs. No way. There was no way they'd end those programs. Hey, Tony, uh, Tony on the live stream saying every month, weekly. Um, Tony, hey, thanks for being a regular viewer, a regular listener. Appreciate that. Um, I enjoy following you on Facebook, too, by the way. You're always out and about in our community, uh, kind of sharing some video highlights. Love that. But, yeah, so, you know, you hear you hear a lot of this rhetoric that the Republicans are going to get rid of Social Security and Medicare. There's just no way. In fact, reality is the opposite. Reality is that the Republicans expand those programs. Now, in my opinion, my opinion those programs absolutely need to be reformed, 100%. I mean, right now, the trajectory, if we, if we did nothing and just let the, the current spending plan and the current tax plan for Social Security and Medicare continue, they would run out of money. I mean, already the, the Board of Trustees of Social Security has said in the year 2034, they're not going to have enough money to fulfill the promises they made. And Medicare, I think they're going to they're not going to be able to fulfill their promises starting in the late 2020s. I mean, it's a serious problem. These, these programs absolutely need to be reformed. I don't believe the Republicans have the cojones to do it. And I know the Democrats don't want to do it. Uh, unless they were like Bernie, they would actually raise taxes to do it. I mean, I just saw a, a video tweet from Bernie just today. You know, ranting about how millionaires and billionaires are are paying a, the same tax rate on Social Security that a person that makes one hundred forty seven thousand dollars a year or less, and that ain't right. Well, well, he's right. It ain't right. Um, but even if they, you know, with Social Security, that's that's what they talk about lifting the cap, right, to make all people's income eligible for Social Security taxes. Even if they did that, the analysts have shown that still won't solve the problem because we have like a it's a demographic problem. There's a lot more old people than there are young people and people are living longer. 
And as a result, the, the, the financial model, the economic model, the demographic model no longer works. Those programs have to be reformed, but they, I don't believe they ever will. The Republicans, you know, when uh, Paul Ryan was the Speaker of the House, he attempted to reform the programs. And remember what he did with Medicare is his program, you know, he attempted to reform it. And of course, when he attempted to do that, all the fear mongering came out. Oh, they want to get rid of Medicare. Paul Ryan's program to reform Medicare would have increased Medicare spending every year, but just at a slower rate of growth. And that over time, gradually, the program would kind of optimize, would rebalance, would get its income and outcome flows properly balanced. If, by chance, the Republicans did reform Social Security and Medicare, that's what they would do. Because cutting those programs would be political suicide for them. There's no way that's going to happen. Now, like I said, if it was up to me... I would be far more aggressive. I, I, I'm of the belief that Social Security in particular is just a terrible program. It's like if, if we were able to invest those dollars ourselves, I mean, after all, it is our money. We earned that money. If we were able to invest those dollars ourselves, our return on investment would be so much more, so much more. Um, but instead, it's put into this program, and now there's already threats that there won't be enough to fund everyone. Um, Social Security, in a lot of ways, I always find, penalizes the responsible in order to reward the irresponsible. You know, I talk about we met with our financial planner. We try to be very responsible on how we've planned our, for our retirement, you know, from the early years of our working lives so that when we retire, that we'll be okay. <laughs> we won't be a burden on anyone else. Won't be a burden on our family or our children or on our community. And we'd be more or less self-sufficient. Um, people, if they had the financial literacy, the financial education and the financial discipline, would be in way better financial shape if Social Security was, did not exist. And instead, that would really amounts to 6.2% of your paycheck with a match from your employer, which is 12.4% of your paycheck. Imagine if you saved that, 12.4% of your paycheck. That would add up in a hurry. I mean, we talk about the richest man in Babylon. One of the rules, of one of the lessons in that book is to save at least 10%. I mean, you could do that just on the money from Social Security alone. Um, but unfortunately, you're not allowed to. I mean, everyone is forced to participate in that program. And that program right now, if you look at the trajectory, the financials, I mean, it's not – this isn't propaganda. It's just math. That program is not going to be able to fulfill promises starting in the year 2034. And then what? I mean, then you've already got all these people – that don't have enough retirement savings and Social Security might shortchange them. I mean, it's like I said, there, there's a potential shitstorm coming. Whereas this whole situation could have been improved from the beginning if there was positive, proper financial education and the ability for people to, you know, keep the fruits of their labor and invest it properly. I mean, they, they'll, the end result would be so much better. Um, so, uh, 
I mean, if it was my, like I said, if it was my opinion, I, I would, with Social Security for sure, I would unwind that program. You can never end it um, because, you know, there have all been all too many promises made, and those promises rightfully and morally should be fulfilled. But there should be a plan, I think, to gradually unwind it. You know, one of the other pieces of rhetoric you'll hear about Social Security is, oh, my God, the Republican Party tried to privatize Social Security uh, back when Bush was president. That's another load of malarkey, to use Biden's favorite phrase. Um, when, when, when Bush put forward his Social Security plan, he only offered a choice for people to keep all their money going to Social Security, status quo, no change, or they could take a tiny slice of their Social Security money and invest it in a small number of of approved kind of investment accounts, mutual funds. I think there might have been six to eight options. And even then, if the, even if people chose to do that, all of the historic savings, the trust account, would still all be publicly run. It wouldn't be privatized at all. Um, but we hear that rhetoric all the time. And I, every time I hear that rhetoric, I keep thinking, I wish they would privatize it. But the Republicans won't do it. They tried. Some of them tried, but it failed. To me, that was one of the very few good things that President George W. Bush did in his uh, two-year or two terms, eight-year terms. Um, but the more important thing is, I think, is that we have to take control of our own lives to make smart decisions about our own lives to essentially, you know, it's like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You should be able to manage your life, have the liberty to do it so that you can ultimately pursue your own values. We don't get enough of that. We don't have enough of education on those topics, um, and we don't give people the freedom to take those, make those kinds of choices. And this kind of goes back to the gun control episode that I did last week, where I think a lot of those important American values are not really being reinforced or taught. That your life is yours, um, and you need to take control of your life and manage your life because no one's coming to save you. Um, and if people had that kind of perspective about their own life, I think they make a lot wiser choices and we'd see people's retirement plans significantly greater. I mean, even the richest man in Babylon, one of the lessons of saving 10% in one of the parables that was brought up is like, oh, I'm very poor and there's no way I could save 10%. Well, he went on in that book, it says, even if you are poor, you can save 10 and live on 90%. You just have to make some tough choices, but it is doable. Um, so I think more that kind of more of that kind of education needs to occur. Okay, uh, wow, we're at forty-two minutes. I want to make some remarks here about inflation. A little bit of commentary on what's going on with inflation, and then I want to particularly look at some things that we can do as individuals to manage our life to either minimize the effect of inflation or in some cases to capitalize on the opportunity. So um, first of all, what's going on? I mean, you know, obviously the economy is red hot. The economy is, is growing. Prices are going up and we're experiencing inflation. What is it now? It's like six, seven, eight percent. I mean, it's a lot. I think the last report, I think I saw 8.3%. Is that right? Um, 
And again, all of this was caused originally um, by, you know, printing and dumping six trillion dollars of money in the economy. Um, and really, what is inflation? Inflation is doesn't mean specifically that prices go up. What it means is, is that the money supply inflates. The money supply grows. Inflation, that's what inflation really means. Now, one of the one of the effects of of growing the money supply is that prices go up. But sometimes people get those confused. They think inflation is the inflating of prices, whereas it's in the inflation is the inflating of the of the of the money supply. And that's what the federal government did coming out of this COVID crisis. Trump printed four trillion, Biden two trillion, together six trillion dollars flooded the market in cahoots with the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve said they were going to do this from the very beginning because they felt one of their weaknesses during the Great Recession is that they didn't spend enough. And so when you flood the market with all this money, what do people do? They spend it, right? And there was increased demand on things. And that in and of itself is going to cause prices to go up. But then it was made even more complicated by all the shutdowns and the stay-at-home orders and all the other consequences of the pandemic. So the point that production was limited, the supply was low. And when you've got high demand and low supply, prices go up. Um, So what the Federal Reserve just did today is they increased interest rates by three-quarters of a percent, which in – Relative history is a lot. I think the last time this happened was in, was it 94, did I read? So it's been almost 30 years since they've increased the interest rates this much in one swoop. Um, But it's still, our interest rates are just still really low. I mean, what is the Federal Reserve's interest rate? I think it's like, what, around 2 or 3%. So the cost of borrowing is more than that. Um, But- do you remember back in the late 70s and the early 80s? I mean, oh, my God. I mean, if you wanted to take out a mortgage, if you wanted to take out a loan to buy a car, interest rates back then were like close to 20 percent. Uh, mortgage interest rates were like around, what, 12 to 15 percent. It was insane. I mean, imagine if mortgage interest rates get that high. It would... I mean, it would completely blow up the the whole housing market. That's for sure. Um, But it would create a tremendous amount of despair for a lot of people. And that's the downside of all this inflation is that um, the the most common solution to it is to slow down the economy, to kind of cool it off. And when you do that, particularly when you raise interest rates and the cost of borrowing becomes more expensive, then businesses are less likely to expand. Businesses are more likely uh, to lay off people when the economy slows down. And businesses that are sort of on the teetering on the brink of solvency, they're the ones that declare bankruptcy and go under. So there's going to be a lot of difficulty, a lot of pain coming through this as we try to minimize inflation. And even the Federal Reserve said that they don't expect inflation to come down this year. It's probably going to be with us into 2023 and maybe even longer. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so this is, a, this is a really serious challenge. 
Um, so what can be done, I mean, to, to resolve inflation? And the one thing, of course, you always hear is that they need to raise interest rates. <clears throat> but there are other things that can be done. There, I mean, a lot of times people will say, um, well, you know, President Biden couldn't possibly be responsible for inflation because this is a worldwide phenomenon and there's really nothing he can do. Oh, come on. I mean, there are things that our politicians can do to minimize the effect of inflation. The first thing they can do is lower tariffs to zero percent. So what is a tariff? That's a tax. A tariff is a tax on when products are imported into America. They can lower that to zero percent. Now, remember, we've always had tariffs. It's always been part of this trade policy that different nations have with each other. But those tariffs were part of President Trump's sort of war, trade war with China, um, where he he was kind of pitching it that China was going to get penalized by these tariffs, and they were indirectly. But tariffs ultimately penalize Americans. Tariffs are a tax on imported goods that corporations pay that ultimately they pass on that tax all the way down the supply chain, all the way down to the consumer. You know, so these tariffs in many cases are 10, 15 percent, even higher on a lot of goods. If those were lowered to zero, that would help lower prices. And in fact, the tariffs that we have now is one component of the whole baby formula crisis. And it, it's also a component of the high lumber prices that we've been experiencing for so long uh, because lumber from Canada is, is tariffed at such a high rate. That would lower prices to a, a degree. What else could be done? Well, if you go back to the 70s and early 80s, uh, particularly the 70s when Jimmy Carter was president, and Carter gets a lot of crap. You know, a lot of people think of him as a terrible president. And, you know, a lot of it was because the economy was awful and because of the whole Iran hostage crisis. But Jimmy Carter did some good things. And I've always been kind of a soft spot on my heart for that guy. Um, and one of the things that he really did that I thought was great and was something that helped address inflation was that he deregulated large portions of the economy. Um, during that time frame, Airlines were deregulated. Trucking was deregulated. Telecom was deregulated. And one of the greatest deregulation stories of all time, beer was deregulated. Beer was deregulated during the Jimmy Carter administration. So what's the benefit of deregulating? Well, if beer or if any, any particular industry is deregulated, then what happens? One, on one hand, it makes it easier for companies to produce goods and services. They don't have the bureaucracy of the regulations that slow them down. So in the world of inflation, we have high demand and minimal supply, right? So when you deregulate, you can ultimately increase supply to sort of catch up with demand and then minimize the impact of inflation with high prices, right? If we increase supply, prices should come down. The other benefit of deregulation is that it puts more competitors in the marketplace, more competitive forces, and that can ultimately help dampen price increases or, in some cases, lower prices. I mean, think about the world of beer. Now, Grant, I'd love to see the price of beer over time, but, you know, back in the 70s, there were only about 
I don't know, five to 10 major brewers in America. Now there are thousands. <laughs> there are so many microbreweries all over America. Um, now companies, you know, like Anheuser-Busch and Miller and Coors and and some of the other large brewers, now they've got a lot of competition. That kind of competition is great. Um, it provides more product, more innovation, um, more supply, and more competitive pressure on those companies that I think can help ultimately help increase supply and lower prices. And that was part of Carter's strategy in doing that. It's amazing to hear a Democrat doing deregulation. I mean, you bring up deregulation now, and most of our friends on the left, our progressives, think you want to poison the air and poison the water. <laughs> like, no, no, we don't want to do that. What we want to do is allow the marketplace to be more competitive, to remove barriers, to remove protected markets through tariffs, um, to remove barriers of entry for competitors, to make it easier to produce goods and services so that more supply is created. And then ultimately, the pressure on increasing prices goes down. And that's what, what I think the leaders in Washington should do. But Oh, and then one more thing is a lot of occupational licenses or things that could be eliminated too. Uh, what do I mean by that? Like, you know, because a lot of professions, it's illegal to practice those professions unless you have a license from the state government to practice. I mean, for example, when you go into a salon or a barbershop and you want to get your hair cut, I mean, right there on the mirror, you see their license. That's just one of many examples. And they have to go through all this training and they got to pay all this money to get that license so they can legally work. Now, some would think that that's important for safety issues and that sort of thing. But really, if you're, if you're a hairstylist or a barber, I mean, really, how much of a safety issue do we have here? Not a lot. Um, what this ultimately is, is a barrier of entry. Uh, these occupational licenses make it harder for people to enter the market and compete. If we didn't have these uh, occupational licenses, we might, and using this example, there might be a lot more hair salons and hairstylists and barbers to the point that the market would be very competitive and prices could start to come down. But the reason those licenses exist is to protect the establishment to protect those individuals or those small businesses from competitive pressure. So if they eliminated a lot of those occupational licenses, not only would you provide more supply and competitive pressure to bring prices down, but you would be empowering the poor to enter professions that they otherwise had a barrier of entry to enter in the first place. You'd be giving people greater opportunity in their career greater economic opportunity to pursue their happiness. So there's a lot of things that can, be ha can happen at that level. But what I want to finish off this podcast with is, is what can you do in your own life, regardless of what the politicians do at the federal, state, and local levels? What can you do to improve your situation? Because inflation is, is reality. And we're already dealing with it, and it's been a challenge, but what can you do? Well, there's a few things you can do. Now, if you're an investor, we're going to look at it from the perspective of an investor, 
a business owner, and an individual consumer. So if you're an investor, what you can do is, you know, optimize your portfolio. Uh, you know, right now the stock market, you know, is pretty volatile. Uh, as inflation goes up, the economy cools off, right? So you would expect the stock market to suffer as inflation goes up. You would normally expect that. But in this market now, so many things don't make sense because everything is so distorted by government policy. But some of the things you can do is you can invest in things that are likely to keep pace with inflation or in some cases uh, that may be even able to exceed inflation. I mean, generally, you'll see a little bit of a shift towards precious metals like gold as a hedge against inflation. That's a common strategy. Um, investing in things like real estate typically are going to be pretty good. Um, if they don't keep pace with inflation, then they might only suffer minimal losses due to inflation. In many cases, one could argue that you might see real estate go up. And then finally, uh, you know, there, there's other things. I mean, if you were the uber rich, uh, things like collectibles are also areas that typically will increase in value, keeping pace or in some cases outpacing inflation. Okay, so what can you do as a business owner? This is harder. Um, because as a business owner, you're trying to handle these increases in your costs, but you don't necessarily want to pass those costs on to your customer because if you do, you know, you're going to get pushback. You're going to get um, – yeah, you're, you're going to end up, you know, making it harder for customers to buy from you. So you're in a real pickle when inflation happens. Uh, it's going to be harder to borrow money. And, you know, credit is in many ways sort of the lifeblood of small businesses. They, they don't have a gazillion dollars in the bank. They're usually financing equipment. You know, they're usually running a line of credit of some kind. You know, not all businesses, but many do. They're using debt as a way to kind of get leverage for their business to grow it. So businesses are going to find it harder to borrow money. And as a result, there's going to be a lot of businesses that are going to fail. Businesses that were already sort of uh, teetering on the brink, um, they're the ones that are going to be challenged. But as a business owner, you're going to have to find ways to streamline your business, to find efficiencies in your business. You're going to have to find ways to make your employees as productive as possible. Hopefully, you're cross-training them and then having a lot of flexibility of how you manage your, your workforce. Because your demand for your products and services is going to probably radically change as inflation occurs and then as the government responds to inflation by cooling down the economy. Um, so you can only sort of work with what you've got. Um, and in some cases, it may be a matter of battening down the hatches to try to get through this to survive. But what can you do as a consumer? And I think that's what all of us are consumers. What can we do to fight inflation? Well, one of the things that we can do is when you go to the store and there's something on sale, buy a lot of it. Because <laughs> not only is it on sale, but over time, those prices are going to keep going up because of inflation. So we'll use the toilet paper example since that was a, a crazy one during the COVID uh, pandemic and the hoarding of toilet paper. But if you're at the store and there's a particularly really good value on toilet paper, don't just buy one package, buy five. And then put the other four in storage 
And then as prices go up, you've bought low and now you can utilize that at a lower price rather than having to go back to the store and pay a higher price. So buying a quantity is big, particularly when it's a really good value. Um, the other thing you can do is you can fix things yourself. You know, rather than replacing things, you can find ways to save money by repairing things in your home. I'll tell you this crazy example, and I'm dealing with this now. I've talked about this on other podcasts. In my backyard, I have this pond, and it's a concrete pond, and it was built with rocks and concrete. And there's an upper basin and a lower basin and a little pump that moves the water between the two. And because it's concrete and rock and, you know, we have earthquakes and other things and things shift, things move, the concrete cracks, then the concrete leaks and the pond leaks. I have been trying for the last two years, maybe three years to get a contractor out here to fix it. And they won't do it or, or they'll show – first of all, they wouldn't repair it at all because they were so busy coming out of the COVID crisis. Um, and uh, he they, – they, would, um, they wouldn't they would come out and fix it. They only wanted to take on new construction jobs, which I didn't want to do. That was going to cost a ton of money. Um, and we had two – no, excuse me, three different contractors come out to try to fix it. And they were here partway through, and they abandoned the project. In one case, one of the companies went bankrupt. Um, in another case, they just quit coming to show – they just quit showing up. And they left the project incomplete and never came out to finish it. So now, finally, I'm doing it myself. I, find, I did the research. I found the right products, and I'm prepping the surfaces, and I'm getting it right, and I'm doing it myself. So in one way, that is one way to overcome inflation because I'm going to end up spending a lot less than if I hired out for that process. What else can you do with inflation? You can barter. You can trade. So, you know, let's say you have certain skills or, um, and someone else has certain skills. Rather than buying from one another, you can trade with one another. Uh, and I'll just use a simple example is um, let's say you're a woodworker and you have a woodworking shop in your garage and you enjoy doing things. Um, and your neighbor um, is a landscaper. Well, you can trade with them. Um, you can provide woodworking services in exchange for landscaping services. And then no money changes hands and the, res and the impact of inflation is minimized. You know, I, I've done that a number of times. Like one great example is, is that, you know, I have a marketing agency and one of my clients sells filtration systems to remove all the minerals, all the hard water, which is so important in San Diego County. Um, and I had always been providing services for this particular client at a fee. And I said, hey, you know what? I need one of your systems. So rather than me buying it from you, how about we do a trade? And the value of what I'm going to offer is the regular retail value. And the value of what you're offering me is the regular retail value. Well, we both know that our hard cost is a lot lower. So if we trade, we end up spending less to get what we need. Um, and that turned out to be a real win-win. I was really happy with that. Um, so pursuing trade is a great way to overcome inflation. Uh, bartering. Um, if, now granted, it may be too late, but if you are 
if you had planned properly and have a fixed rate mortgage on your home, that's a great hedge against inflation. Because if you're paying a mortgage of, let's just say, 2 or 3%, and inflation is like 8%, um, you're you're making money. Um, your your home is going up in value at a far um, far greater rate than the interest you're paying on that loan. So hopefully we have fixed rate mortgages. We don't have those variable rate runs that we get stung with during inflation. In fact, that's what we saw in the Great Recession. So many people had those variable rate mortgages, and they just got screwed when the rates went up. What else can you do to overcome inflation? Um, You can build skills. I mean, that's the one thing you can definitely do is is to take the time necessary to learn new skills, to make yourself more marketable in the job market, to learn new things um, that make you more valuable for your your particular um, um, customers or for your employer. I mean, imagine you're working for a small business. The small business is challenged trying to manage through inflation. And you happen to be um, someone that let's just say you work in the financial department. But on the side, you've been taking classes or you've been learning on your own about web development. You've built skills in web development and you also have all these financial skills. And then if that company starts to downsize because of inflation, because of the slowing of the economy, you might be able to tell your boss, hey, you know what? I've been learning these web skills too. I could continue to do the financial work and I can help build or maintain the website. Um, I can do a lot of other things. I could be more versatile. I could be more valuable. Those are things you can do to help yourself um, overcome inflation. And if you do it right, if you build skills, not only could you be potentially more valuable to your employer, but you may be able to open up multiple streams of income. If you've got a day job, listen, in this particular case, doing financial work for a particular small business, and you're building skills in other, in, other, um, in other categories, you can then begin to take a lot of your existing and new skills and then go and provide that as a service to other companies as a side hustle, as a consultant. You know, maybe do a little moonlighting, earn some extra income, open up multiple revenue streams so you're not dependent on a single employer. If you do that, you'll be earning more money so you can keep pace with inflation. Hopefully your boss is is giving you a salary increase to keep pace with inflation. But there's no guarantees of that. In fact, a lot of people aren't getting that. Well, you've got to be able to overcome that somehow. So opening up multiple streams of income is important. So the side hustle angle is also another thing you can do. So, you know, there's a lot that we can do to overcome inflation. Okay, we got a member on the live stream here. Brave Sailor said, he's speaking too much gloom and doom, but still a fan. Okay, well, thanks for being a fan. But I'll tell you what, you know, when we're talking about inflation, when we're talking about People that are not saving for retirement, when we're talking about these threats of sunsetting Social Security and Medicare, I mean, there is a certain sense of gloom and doom. I mean, that's just the reality of what we're dealing with. Now, the question is, is that how can you capitalize? What can you do to overcome this doom and gloom? What can you do in your own life 
to improve your situation so you can ultimately pursue your happiness because that's what it's really about. And so I'm hopeful that some of the tips and, and tricks that we shared in this podcast can be helpful for you. Okay, so thanks for listening. Thanks for joining me. Um, if you want to discuss further, you can go on my um, uh, one of my web pages is connectwithjohnny.com. If you go to connectwithjohnny.com, you can get on our email list. All the links to all of our social media platforms are there: Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, um, all there. We encourage conversation there. Would certainly enjoy your thoughts and comments. I'm pretty active on Twitter. I spent a lot of, probably a little too much time there. Um, but uh, we welcome your thoughts and comments. You can continue the conversation by going to connectwithjohnny.com. Okay. Well, that wraps it up. This is the John Riley Project. This is episode number 277 of this podcast. We're doing what we can to help you um, pursue your happiness and live your life and to flourish, to flourish to the maximum of your ability. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor, subscribe and then share it with a friend or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue the conversation on social media. Go to connectwithjohnny.com to get links to our social media content, audio podcast platforms, and to sign up for our mailing list. To be a guest, read my blog or get more information please visit johnreillyproject.com to get started.